Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and so glad that you're with me today. In the show, I don't mess around with easy topics. And as I've stated many times before, my desire is to find God's goodness precisely in the challenging places of our lives and of culture. So I couldn't help myself when I got a little curious about how two seemingly opposed ideologies can fit together. Catholicism on one hand and feminism on the other. Can there be such a thing as a Catholic feminism? Yes, there can, but we need to talk about what that looks like. So joining me once again on the show is my friend, Dr. Jennifer Miller from Notre Dame Seminary. And since the last time I had her on, she has become the director of research at a center she co-founded called the International Institute of Culture and Gender Studies. Dr. Miller is a professor at Notre Dame Seminary and is about to take a sabbatical and embark on a worldwide tour trying to understand how various cultures understand gender. It's going to be awesome. So I promised you way back with the first episode on authentic masculinity that I would have her back on the show to talk about femininity. And man, this episode was absolutely worth the wait. So put your thinking caps on with me in this one because we get into it and talk about the historical roots of Catholic feminism, ways women are distinct from men, particular challenges women face today, concerns for women as we march forward towards a genderless society, and why understanding sex complementarity is the best option. This conversation is very timely for many of the larger questions women and men face today. If you have any follow-up questions, please hit me up on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I would love to hear your thoughts on this challenging topic. All right, let's go. Dr. Jennifer Miller, welcome back to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me again. Wow. So you are, you are my first guest and now you're my first repeat guest. Thanks. I, I am appreciate extre- it. I'm very honored. <laughs> extremely honored. Thank you. Thank you. So in the very first episode of the show, uh, we sat and we talked about masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? And just kind of everything that entails that. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and find it. It's there available for you uh, on the website or wherever uh, you listen to your podcasts. But today, as promised back then, that we would do a part two to that conversation. So it's taken a few months, but that's how life is. Um, so we're good. So here we are, part two. We're going to talk about femininity. Okay? Yes. So ready? right out of the <laughs> gates. You ready? Yes. First question. What is femininity and how does it differ from masculinity? So obviously, this is a very loaded question. Yes, it is. Um, We could go a lot of places to discuss this. Since I happen to be a theologian, um, we're going to go back to the word of God and we're going to begin to look at it through the light of Revelation. Let's do it. So... Brief recap of what we did last time. Don't ask me any trick questions again about the garden. (laughs) No more trick slash (laughs) test questions, which I mean, most of us get it wrong. I'm supposed to look smart on my own show. Okay, come on. You got to help me out here. (laughs) (laughs) Mea culpa, mea culpa. Um, But let's let's go back to Genesis and we'll kind of do a recap of masculinity um, so that we better understand what femininity is looking at it. So when we went back to Genesis 2, back to the beginning, as St. John Paul II is wont to say, one of the things that we found was that for the most part, Genesis 2, 7 to about Genesis 2, 19, we have a dom, we have humanity, right, who is capable of having this amazing relationship with God, um, who has this incredible job, right? He gets to be the animal namer, the first best and only animal namer, right? So he goes straight to the top of his career immediately. And yet he is so bored by himself that he falls into this deep sleep. Right. And it's in falling into this deep sleep, right, that God then has the opportunity. St. John Paul II calls this the definitive creation of humanity. Because when Adam, that generic Hebrew term for humanity, wakes up, we find Ish and Isha, male and female, for the first time. Because they can only be seen, they can only be known by looking at one another. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. So it's amazing. It's incredible. We know our masculinity and our femininity always in relationship with, with the other. So looking at this, one of the things that we did was we saw what was particular to masculinity. So 
<laughs> Dr. Mario. I feel there's a trick question coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, like no trick question. So what did we say was that first gift? Um, that the man gave to the woman? That the man gave to the woman, that the male gave to the Isn't female. Isn't the, the blessing, the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he definitely says. What does he say with that? Um, well, I guess first he woke up. About he, wakes <laughs> he wakes up, so he up. probably yawned. <laughs> so he probably yawned. <laughs> that in alone is a gift, right? Most women complain about their husbands, you know, being lazy or whatever. So he joking, woke up, sorry. he got up. Woke he took up, initiative. He got, up. he got me again. Okay. This one shall be called. A woman. He names because. Her. Because she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Because she is an equal. She is different. She is set apart. She is the only being in all of creation that will understand who I am and how to, how I, how I operate and how I think and who I am as a person. Exactly. So in his relationship mm -hmm. with the animals or kind of non relationship with mm -hmm. the animals right. in his interaction with them, he had come to the realization that he needed someone who was similar and yet different. Yeah. So with the animals, there's no intimacy. I mean, there's no capacity for intimacy because, because of the distinction that because of the difference that's there. But now with a woman, he immediately recognizes this, this, this capacity, this answer for that desire, for that longing, the answer to the original solitude that JP2 talks about in the, in the catechesis of the theology of the body. So there it is. I mean, it's, it's that first, oof, like, this is somebody who gets it. Exactly. And so he goes ahead and he makes a gift of self to her yeah. by giving her the only thing that he has, which is that, that name, right? That power, yeah, to, and, to bestow. Name. So he provides, as we said last time, he provides a good for her by revealing to her her identity, mm -hmm. that she is bride and that she is loved. And so in this way, we can say that the particular way or the unique way that man images God is that he images God as creator, right? Whereas God may create things and then give them to the ones that the one that he loves, Adam and then Ish, that male, the man, recognizes that this is a good that I can provide for the one that I love, right? And so we spoke about how, how he provides physically, spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually doing all that imaging God. Right. So the question then is, well, how does woman image God, right? Yeah, great question. If they're created male and female in the image and likeness of God, and he's imaging God as creator, then how is woman imaging God? And... I think the key is actually in the silence of woman. The key is found in the fact that she says not a word, right? So it looks as if the man is doing everything in this passage. He wakes up, right? Good thing. <laughs> he, he provides his name. He reveals to her her identity as bride. He leaves his father and mother and the woman does nothing. This should alert us to the fact that there's something odd going on here. Because often, it's not the man who's doing most of the talking. Yes, correct. <laughs> I think we said that last time. Or I've heard this in another one of your lectures, right? That this is one of the few times that a woman does not say uh, more than the man does. She gets out-talked. <laughs> she gets out-talked. <laughs> so, so then what's going on here? And how is woman imaging man? And I think, again, the text offers us some very specific clues. We saw earlier that the specific word that God refer, uses to refer to woman is Ezer Konegdo in Hebrew. And it means God who comes in times of trouble to save his people. Right? St. Thomas Aquinas, looking at this passage, says that when man sees woman for the first time, he sees the incarnation. And looking at these together, what we can say is woman here images God as Savior. Yeah. That, that same phrase that is applied to God as Savior is applied to her. It's beautiful. He sees the incarnation in her. And why? That's a much more powerful word than helpmate. Exactly. So <laughs> Savior, where does helpmate come from? Brings, yeah. Why, does, why, why, do we, why do we use the word helpmate as opposed to Savior? I think it's because it's one of those phrases that's very difficult to translate. Yeah. It, it, it's only referred in other places, but the technical meaning, if you were to break it down, would be one who is similar, who stands in front of. It's almost like, as I'm thinking about it, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, but it's like, rather than just a helper kind of along on the journey, it's almost that man 
recognizes his limitations and he sees his limitations because of the lack of relationship among the animals and all of creation. So now here's this woman. And so that, that limitation, that longing that he had is now fulfilled in another. And is that what salvation is then the, the making up for that, which, what we are, that which we are lacking? Exactly. Is that one way to kind of think of this? Well, it's one way to think of it. If he is called to image God and then to grow in that image, right? The fathers say the word likeness refers to our growing in our conformity to God, or we would say in our conformity to Christ. If this is what's happening, he has to image God. Well, God is love. Yeah. He gives himself to another. And thus, man has to have someone to whom he can give himself. Without woman, man can't realize himself. He can't image God, and thus there is no salvation present. So what does this mean then? Tie, just tie that a little bit more in terms of women as savior. <laughs> I don't think you mean Captain Marvel <laughs> or, or Wonder Woman, right? Which no respect to those movies, they're, they're great. But I don't think that's what the, the gospel narrative is or the, 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 the Genesis narrative is, is speaking about. I think that it's speaking about a different kind of strength. Okay. Right? We often tend to think of strength in very masculine terms. So, for example, Aristotle says strength, courage, fortitude, we see first and foremost in the warrior, Mm -hmm. right? The man who enters battle, the man who's able to conquer his fear and to go on and to conquer the enemy. There's Aquinas in the light of the gospel. says that the first act of fortitude isn't aggression, but it's endurance. Yeah. Right? Right. The, for him, the first the first act of fortitude has to do with the martyr who suffers love. And this is what we see woman doing here. She shows a courage and a strength that comes from accepting the truth being revealed to her and suffering the love that is being given to her of the man. Which is why then her, her the curse against her would, would go directly in that in terms of the increasing of suffering. Yes, yeah. into it's an, endurance. I mean, it's an it's an increasing in the endurance of childbirth and and pregnancy and longing for for the man Is and longing that right? for the man, right? Yeah. Because if he's supposed to be providing the good for the other, and yet in the curse he becomes focused on the provision, not the other, then in the curse she who is called to suffer the love of the other suffers and feels that she's not worthy of his love. Okay, so I imagine some people might be thinking that this is a little too you know, high right now. So let's bring this back a little bit. Yes. What then does it mean in light of these terms and these definitions of man and woman? What does that mean to be a woman today living out of that identity? It means first and foremost, I'm called to accept the reality that I am loved, that I'm created to be loved. And... This is extremely difficult for women, right? As women, what we tend to do is we tend to um, find an excuse for the good things that we have done, or we tend to give credit to someone else, or we tend to pretend that it's not a big deal. Like, oh, this was amazing dinner. Well, you know, I got the recipe from my mom and my sister came over and helped or, um, wow, like this thing that you have made is so beautiful. Oh, well, I just found it on YouTube. You know, like you could do it yourself if you tried or... Anytime that we're given a compliment, even you're beautiful. Well, I didn't really have time to get my hair done or, you know, like I've kind of gained a little bit of weight. We as women find it difficult to receive love. And and I think one of the ways this was hammered home to me was um, a couple months ago, I, I was texting with a male colleague and he praised, lauded, thanked me for something that I had done. He felt was amazing. And I went to text back, oh, it's all the grace of the Holy Spirit right? Deflecting the compliment, deflecting the love that was being offered to me as bride, as savior. And he responded in all caps before I could finish the text. And he said, Jennifer, take the compliment, you know? (laughs) And when I speak to other women, when I speak about what it means to suffer love, to receive love, the fact that we're created to be loved, they cry Mm. because they recognize within themselves, they feel that they have to spend their entire lives becoming worthy to be loved, not that it's where they began. Yeah, this is, this is beautiful. I mean, one of my favorite authors of the last few years is a social researcher, Dr. Brene Brown, who, if you don't know who she is, please look her up on YouTube. She's got some great TED Talks. Um, but she writes a lot about shame and vulnerability. And, and her initial research was, was specifically on women and how women experience love. And what led her towards shame is that you start asking a group of women about how they experience love, the first thing they'll tell you is how they experience heartache. Wow. 
and to your point that they can't it it you can't ignore then that shame or that that lack of worthiness inside of yourself and how that prevents us from being able to to receive love she then branched out and started researching men as well but but at least her initial findings with women i think is is right online with with everything that you're the same conclusions you're coming to theologically so it's really really profound um so then going back to this relationship okay if man is uh ish is that right yes uh male creator male uh and woman is isha isha uh savior Mm -hmm. Um, imaging god in these two particular aspects imaging god in these two particular aspects we have Almost kind of a mirroring, if I may say, of the, the father and the son here, right? Of, of the creator and, and, and the receiver of that love. Is that going too far? Am I, am I, am I being heretical right now? No, you're not being heretical. <laughs> this is, this, so this is actually something that I've had a lot of conversations with people with um, mm-hmm. about in the last month. Because this is just something that like in my own research, in my own prayer, in my own reading of sacred scripture has really um, come to the forefront. I mean, it's no surprise. I mean, Jesus, the, the virtues that Jesus promotes often are associated with femininity. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus had to come as a man. I mean, if it, it, we wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been different if it wasn't a woman talking about gentleness and, and receptivity and, and all of that. But it's because he was as a man speaking and preaching this as an integrated human person, that that was part of the power of his message. And there, Cause there he wasn't are. effeminate. He wasn't gender neutral. This yeah. isn't, this isn't, um, um, uh, Androgyny. This is in, this is integration of what a person is supposed to be. Exactly, and there are, there are feminist authors, in fact, who have argued that this is part of the radical nature, the provocative nature of Jesus. Is that as a man, he argues for what we often or exemplifies what we often see as feminine virtues. Um, I follow, trying to follow Aquinas here would say that this actually refers back to the divine essence, which is the three persons mm-hmm. held in tension. So. I would say that perhaps we see aspects of salvation lived out then in all three of the persons we wouldn't and creation as well, right? right? It's those works can be imputed or attributed to all three persons. So we might certainly see more of it in terms of what we see in the incarnation, but Yahweh also comes to right. save his people. Right. And, and the same thing with the man also, we would see, well, obviously a woman has a capacity to create and a man has a capacity to receive love. We don't want to get too rigid. Exactly. And, and forget that, that these are types that are moving us towards the eternal reality without falling back into getting too, too rigid with uh, gender stereotypes. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Mario, and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Miller to ask you a quick question. When you go on Amazon and think about buying a product, what is the first thing that you look at? Well, if you're like me, I would imagine that the first thing you do is to see how many stars the product has and read the reviews from other customers. Listening from your peers means more than listening from the creator of the product. The reality is that it's the same thing with podcasting. So I'm asking you, dear listener, if this show has helped you in any way, please leave a rating and please leave a review on iTunes. Unfortunately, Spotify and Google Play don't do that yet, but if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts on iTunes, please leave a rating and leave a review. It really helps for others to find out about the show. So thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Okay, so if the woman then is is to receive, and that's primarily one of the challenges that she has is to recognize her capacity to receive love. Back into back into this conversation of relationship, um, a couple weeks ago I did an uh, an open Q and A at LSU, where I was at the the campus ministry. Um, it's one of my my podcasts that that you can listen to, um, and the students just answered fielded questions, and I just answered. It was really wow. a great kind of back and forth with uh, with just the group that was there. Um, but one of the questions that I was asked towards the end of the night, I don't feel like I nailed it and maybe because I was tired or, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't feel like I quite gave the answer like down. So I'm going to ask you the question that was asked of me in context This is of my this. trick tr- test no, question. No, 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 we're good. We're good. This is right in line. It fits perfectly. Um, so back to the question of relationship then, how does a woman bring out the masculinity in the man that she loves? Exactly. So I think this is a really good question. And why don't we, we'll do it theologically and then we'll kind of give some examples Sounds of that. Great. So as we, the, as we alluded to this time and as we kind of spoke about last time, right, man kind of images bridegroom 
woman bride in, in that first way. So the giving and then the receiving of love. But it's not that a woman just stands there and receives love, right? Once she has received that love and been transformed by that, a woman instinctively innately knows that to receive love makes her a mother, right? So now it's her turn, right? Now she, then she gives love by calling a man into his fatherhood. And we can see this in, in a couple of examples of the saints. So, for example, if we were to look at the relationship between St. Zelie and St. Louis Martin, some of my favorite saints, right? So um, we see that she has this habit then of calling him into his fatherhood, of, of pointing him, helping him to realize this is a good for my children. And one of the examples there is when he doesn't want to let one of his girls go on retreat because he's thinking about expenditure. He's thinking about absence. He doesn't want her to be alone. So she, she mentions it. And he gets kind of not happy, unhappy with it. And she drops it. And then she waits about a week and she brings it up again. And she says, I know you desire the good for our daughter. And you know, this is a good for her and for her spiritual growth. And he says, you're right. It is right. So she doesn't force it. But she presents it to him in such a way that he can accept um, his fatherhood. We would see the same thing with St. Catherine of Siena, right? So a lay woman, single lay woman, not consecrated, not religious. And she was called mama or mother by the, the kind of the group or the family that formed around her. And she would write a lot of male abbots, prelates, even the pope. She begins with a very powerful phrase, always calling herself Servant and slave of the servants of God. And the servant of the servants of God is actually the title of the Pope, right? So it's a very powerful title to give yourself in a letter. And then the second line addressed to these men would always be, I desire for you the gift of, right? So she wouldn't say, you have to do this. You need to do this. She would say, I desire for you the gift of, and sometimes it would be growing in the ability to correct others, right? For an abbot or for a prelate that was very, that's very important for someone who is a father, also has to be able to correct his children. And she would often also associate the word viral or viral with this so that she saw this was part of their masculinity. I desire this masculine gift for you. Okay. So I'm thinking about this actually in, in counseling terms now in how does a woman draw this out then is, is um, encouraging the man to, to mature is basically what you're saying. When you talk about fatherhood, fatherhood is, is the, a mature man. Yes. In some ways. Okay. Um, so she can see the, the deficits and then find a way to align with him to bring out the good that's there. That is very different than um, nagging. Yes. That's very different than being passive aggressive. Uh, yes. That's very different than being harsh and, and critical. How does a woman find that balance? I think it begins by the fact that she, because she has first received his love and thus affirmed him in his masculinity. What if she hasn't? Well, then she needs to practice doing that, right? And there are very practical everyday ways to practice that. The first is by listening, so, so again, right, we women do tend to be more talkative than men. And it's because we want to share, because we want to, we want to give everything we have. Well, that's great, but, but you also need to listen. And my mother, I thought was a great example for this. She would be on the phone with her friends, making dinner for us. And my father would come home from work and she would say to her girlfriend on the phone, she would say, well, my husband's home. I need to go. She'd hang up the phone she would stop whatever else she was doing and she would sit down with him and she would say, honey, how was your day? And the first thing that she did was listen to him, right? And that made valid all of his problems, all of his concerns, rejoicing in his joy, sorrowing in his sorrows by receiving him, right? By being able to accept the masculinity that he was offering her. When then she saw places where he needed to grow he was then able to accept that because he knew that she already saw him as a real man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how does a single woman do this then? I think it's the same way. Yeah. I think in part by listening, right? Listening, um, asking for help. So, so this is a really difficult one and it might not sound like it is, but it is for a couple of reasons. And one is that when you're a single woman, you get very accustomed to doing things by yourself. So yesterday I, I was getting in the elevator. I was holding my purse. I was holding three bags. 
And, you know, one of my na- my male neighbors wants to get, get in with me and he's like, oh, I can open the door for you. And it's common sense to allow him to do so. But I'm accustomed to opening my own my own door, even with my hands full or like pushing the button four on the elevator, doing all of those other things. So to ask men for help and then in ladies, this is so important. You have to allow them to finish helping you. Right. So I'm not a computer person. I'm not a tech person. So if I have a problem on the computer, I ask the closest man because I assume maybe this is my stereotypical gender ideas <laughs> that men know how to fix things on computers. Right. So I'm calling them to give love. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is most men have a good idea, but they're not necessarily tech experts. So after two or three minutes, they might have no idea what they're doing. That doesn't mean when they want to give up, though, because I've asked them to be a man and to provide a good for me. So they want to keep on. My tendency is if you don't know what after three minutes, you're not going to know what to give up. And I have to work really hard because I will after three minutes say, oh, don't worry, I'll ask someone so-and-so, someone else. And by doing that, I haven't meant to, but have kind of said, you're not man enough to deal with my problems. You're not man enough to provide for me. That cuts. And that's why we have to let them finish helping us. <laughs> <laughs> Until they feel like it's done. Um, okay. So th- this conversation uh, as the last one, what I've appreciated about your thought in these matters is the level of nuance and complexity that's at work here. Um, because it is, it is challenging. That's the relationship between men and women and the, the challenges there have happened since right after the fall. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not like there was ever a generation that like had it figured out. We're and constantly... they wrote us blogs yes. or scrolls to, to follow them afterwards. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls of, <laughs> of marriage counseling are out there somewhere. That, that, so there's always been this, this tension between the two. But, but what I think is different in our society in today's day and age, and, and maybe, maybe you can shed some light on this as opposed to, to previous, is that even though the tension was always there, we were still trying to figure it out. And one of my concerns with the push towards a genderless society, a gender neutral society, is almost like we're waving the white towel and just saying it's not even worth trying to figure it out anymore. Everybody's the same. Don't worry about it. Yes. And the, this truly is a concern um, because then what happens is we lose the specific gift that God has given to each one of us, right? And it means that we will not be able to become the people we desire to be or the people that we're called to be. Now, the reasons for this are slightly complex. If you'd like, we could look Please, at them atop it historically. Let's go. So we could say that um, the question of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, they've been discussing since 750 BC. But before Christ, the, the answers kind of fell into two categories, and we could call them sex or gender unity and sex or gender polarity. So sex or, or gender unity, which comes out of Plato, is kind of this idea that Men and women are equal because they're the same, right? So for him, this is important for purposes of reincarnation, to be able to put the soul in different kinds of bodies, right? So so the, the body isn't important, only the soul is important. For him, the soul is genderless, right? So we are equal because we're the same, right? Now, Aristotle, who was So his, hold on, just yes. stop right there. So Plato believed in, in reincarnation. That's what yes. you're saying. And basically the soul is genderless. So the soul is almost like a liquid that'll take the shape of whatever cup it fills in. I think that's a very good analogy to use. Okay. So whether the cup is a male looking cup or the cup's a female looking cup, they're exactly the same because they can both be filled the same by whatever the water exactly. is that fills it. By the same water, coffee, whatever. Okay. Great. <laughs> okay. No, thank you. Thank Wine, you. Maybe beer. We'll, we'll, we'll stick, we'll stick with the water Springs. cup. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Exactly. So then... Aristotle comes after Plato. He's his disciple, and he kind of disagrees with this. You know, like good disciples can agree with or slightly correct their teachers, except, of course, for my students. And um, he says, well, you know, what's really important is the body, the, what we see here on the, in, on the earth, what, what is real, what we can perceive. I can't perceive a soul. I can p- perceive a body. And so he says, what's really important is the body. Male and female bodies are different. The male body is obviously superior because it can generate life. And thus, a woman is only a misformed male or a misbegotten male. 
So he sees a difference, and difference leads him to say there must be a superiority and an inferiority, right? He also has his, um, as you could just tell there, a really bad biological idea. He's no idea that both men and women contribute to the generation of life. Right, or that every um, embryo starts as a woman. Yeah, so... <laughs> 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 it's true. So, and so the Y chromosome a, kicks in, and once that testosterone starts coming in neonatal development, that's what shuts down the the female trajectory. And biologically, mm-hmm. a lot of these things we haven't even known until the last couple of centuries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, um, so Aristotle says women is a, a misformed male, and thus the superiority is there because a the man is the one who's able to create and generate life uh, and give that to the woman. That's why he has the superiority. Is that it? Exactly. So. Before Christ, we have like one of two options, right? And and one of them is that we're exactly the same, and because we're the same, we're equal. And the other one is that we're different, and because we're different, one is superior to the other. And both of these are actually pretty bad choices. They are. Yeah, absolutely. I would never say that I'm exactly like a man or that a man is exactly like me. Right. And, and how would he know that? How has he experienced being who I'm being? On the other hand, I would definitely say that no man is better to myself. Yeah, of course. Um, and I would hope not to act in such a way that I presume to be better than men. Right. Um, so what we, what we realize is that neither one of these options are really good. And then with Christ, we can say what comes... Um, and let me be slightly provocative here. Do it. What comes is a gender revolution. Yeah. Because Christ affirms that when we are resurrected, we will be resurrected as male and female, mm-hmm. which means that the difference will be affirmed. And at the same time, that equality of being created in the image and likeness of God is something that persists through redemption and will remain within eternal life. So now we see a third option, not that we are um, equal um, but, or, or distinct or um, like Plato said and what Aristotle did. And you had the two kind of separations there. Now we have a way that we can say we are different and we are equal. Exactly. We see this sometimes this is called sex complementarity, right? The fact that men and women are considered equal. And yet at the same time, each one has their unique gift. And Christ doesn't just proclaim this. He also lives this out. We see the way that he interact with women, that he interacts with women. Now, but why, why is, this might seem like a dumb no. question, but like, why is Christ the answer to that? I mean, I know that theologically I get it, but we couldn't come to that separate, but um, equal, but different just pure, by pure reason. We needed faith to, to reveal that to us. It might have been possible by reason, right? But we certainly see the fullness of this in faith. If Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, right? So the fullness of divine wisdom and knowledge within the person of Jesus Christ, then it's there that we will find the fullness of the truth about who we are as men and women. So what do you think is going on? Why why are we moving then towards this genderless society? I think a lot of this has to do with um, some positions that were taken up in the Enlightenment. So we kind of tend to think that everything in terms of gender looks the same way that it did in the 18th and the 19th century. And this isn't true. If we were to go back to the early church, if we were to look at the Middle Ages, in which the idea of sex complementarity um, received its first full exposition, actually from a woman, from St. Hildegard of Bingen, who was proclaimed both saint and doctor of the church by Benedict XVI, we would find that there was actually a lot more freedom for women. There was a lot more diversity in the things that women did, both in the home and in the public realm. Um, But with the recuperation of neo-pagan ideas in terms of the Enlightenment, these ideas of Aristotle and Plato begin to be reborn within our society. And so this influences the way that feminism begins to develop in the United States in a very particular way. It develops differently in other countries so that we often feel that we're left with one of two options, that we can either be equal, which means the same, or the same, which means equal. Or if we affirm a difference, we have to affirm a superiority and inferiority. And again, neither one of these are good choices. And because in response to the superiority-inferiority stance of the 18th and 19th centuries, as you said, we have then rebounded or moving towards, if that's the Aristotle option, we're moving back towards the Plato option? 
Exactly. Where it's no, there's no fundamental difference between the two. And we wouldn't trace them straight back there. Yeah, we yeah, would say, no, yes, right. we're going back to the Aristotle and the Platonic option. So you yeah. have one of the two, which is why people say, well, I certainly think there's an equality. Thus, we must be all the same. Which to your point, then we can't get to this without faith. Again, I think the faith gives a particular light to it. That doesn't mean that people can't reach the same conclusions through reason. Mm -hmm. But But that faith is really what gives us the the clear lens to be able to uphold not just the the separate, um, but but different, but the the equal, the complementarity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Saint, um, not not saint, but now, but hopefully one day, Benedict the Sixteenth says that faith is like a light that allows us to see further and broader and wider than reason. So I guess I'm just trying to get to is that we, as the enlightenment is taken over, as these ideologies and philosophies that are really contrary to, to the Christian ethic and Christian life, we would see then this, this confusion kind of emerging. Exactly. So you can certainly in the enlightenment, we wouldn't say everything was bad. Yeah, no, of course. But that there was right. sometimes that there was no discernment about what they were recuperating from the classical past. Right. This is Dr. Mario again. I'm taking another quick break to remind you that I really would love to be able to dialogue with you on social media. I know that this is a challenging topic. So if you have any questions that you would love to hear more about, please follow me at Dr. Mario Sacasa. We can certainly talk about Catholic feminism or other things like Avengers Endgame. What a great movie. Look forward to hearing from you on those platforms. Moving then along from this conversation, we talked about feminism and the rise of feminism. Let's talk more about that. Um, can there be a Catholic feminism? It yes. seems, yes. And, and, and I really want to tease this out because when we toss the word feminism out, immediately we have ideas of, with respect, left-wing um, liberal ideologies that want to tear down the structures that came before it, um, and want to uphold this new order. And it seems that at least as, as feminism is understood today, that often many of the ideas, not all, but many of the ideas that are um, kind of associated with feminism run contrary to Catholic teaching. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, at least that's my, that's my, that's my, I'll say that's my experience having gone to secular schools for undergraduate and, and all the way through and anytime I met a feminist, I always seemed like I was at, I always felt like I was on the defensive end. And, and I, while I respected and understood the person's opinions and, and know that they're made in the image and likeness of God, they have that. But feminism has taken a turn where it doesn't seem like it's, it's compatible with, with the faith. So where does a Catholic, authentic Catholic feminism stand? I think this is a really good question. And I think you're very right on the term, um, on your perception of the term Catholic feminism. So I teach a course on Catholic feminism, as you know, at Tulane Catholic. We also teach a course at Catholic Man. Um, and every year I have women sign up and I ask them why. And they always say, um, because I hear that you can't be a Catholic and a feminist at the same time. But I believe in the equality of women and I believe in my faith. And for a while I was Ubering every time I go to teach the class. And, you know, people would ask me, well, what are you doing at Tulane? I'd say, I'm going to teach a course on Catholic feminism. Really? And so in three to five minutes, you know, they'd ask me, can you explain what that is? I've never heard of that before. And one man even said that he felt that baptizing his children into, into the Catholic faith was making them the second sex. He had done so. He had two twin daughters, um, but that he felt that he was giving them second class citizenship. So the question is valid and the question is extremely important. So I'm your Uber driver right now. You are my Uber driver right <laughs> now. And I'll give you a tip. (laughs) Oh, thanks. All right. I look forward to it at the end. (laughs) So what's the Catholic feminism? So I would say that, first of all, we have to realize that as Catholics, um, that we should be proud of of using this term feminist. And one reason is that we can certainly go back to St. John Paul II, who called himself the feminist pope. He does so um, kind of beginning with or in elucidating this reality in his 1988 letter on the dignity and the vocation of women, Mulieris Dignitatum. And I think even historically going back, we see that this has been a trend throughout the church. So the first feminist movement actually began back in the 14th, 15th century with Christine de Pizan. So 
to talk about a movement that um, asserts the dignity of women and seeks for there to be understood an equality and a complementarity of difference between the two sexes, we could already go back then to the 15th century to a French Catholic woman who, against the publication of an anti-feminist work known as Romain de la Rose or Romance de la Rose, 400 pages berating the infidelity, um, the gullibility of women and the fact that, that we're merely sex objects to be used, begins to write instead using logical rhetorical arguments, using Aristotle, using reason, using the faith, and using her own experience as a married woman to say there is a beauty and there is an equality in the relationship between men and women. Women are intelligent, just like men are. Women are virtuous, just like men are. And women have a place to speak in society and to defend their name and to promote it as well. Okay. So there is a Catholic feminism. The church supports this notion of um, complementarity. Again, that means that, that both sexes are different, but that there's an equality and a gift um, between the two. What then does a Catholic feminism um, mean moving forward politically and practically speaking? I think this means that moving forward, we have to begin to recognize that a lot of the things that we hold as Catholics, we can better understand and defend by looking at some of the things that feminism gives us or some of the tools that feminism gives us. For example, the first day when I teach this Catholic feminism course at Tulane, I'll ask the, the female students there, what are some ideas that you have associated with feminism or that the culture associates with feminism? And they'll go through and they'll say, you know, sometimes they'll say angry, they'll say, um, you know, equal pay for equal work. They'll say the right to vote. They'll say abortion. They'll say contraception. We'll, we'll fill up the board, right? And then when we talk about sex unity and sex polarity, which is the next thing that we'll do, and I'll say, well, okay, well, which of these ideas, because this really is a mixed bag, are associated with which? So, oh, well, equal pay for equal work, you know, is definitely associated with sex unity. And, you know, kind of this anger is sometimes associated with sex polarity. You know, the idea that, um, that, that men have imposed upon women or have treated women as inferior. And then we'll get to abortion and we'll get to contraception. And I'll ask the question, well, where do these fall? If abortion and contraception assume that a woman's body has to act the same way that a man's body does, that has to be incapable by itself of bringing forth life in this world, what is implied here? And I see the fireworks go off in their eyes, right? Here we have a sex polarity, abortion and contraception. Suppose that for a woman to be equal to a man, her body has to function just like his. Thus, they, they suppose that women are inferior to men. Tease that out. Keep going. So often what we do is we, when we approach these, these arguments, we feel that what we're doing is we're fighting against feminists. And what we have to do in our conversations with them is actually help them to realize that we're fighting with them. We're fighting for an equality that recognizes that women don't have to be just like men to be equal to them. But the problem with abortion, though, is with respect, again, as I hear the term or I hear the, the, the arguments in favor of abortion, or in contraception, we'll just go there, women's reproductive rights, reproductive rights, it's in the vein of equality, isn't it? Isn't it made and promoted in the sense that we're trying to make the two equal? I think this is the way it's promoted, but I don't think it's the reality of those who live it. Well, of course it's not. I mean, because, the, and I think that's, that's the point here is, is for, for, if you're looking at the man and the woman, and the man is the one who, who, bestows, gives the seed to the woman and she receives it, the, there, and then she has to gestate and form that child inside of her for nine months and then deliver it. The man's job, I mean, is a five minute, maybe a little bit longer, depending, <laughs> depending how, how, how passionate the evening was endeavor, 
whatever it is, it's not a nine month endeavor. No, there's no equality. I mean, when you when you look at equality as far as uh, uh you know, justice being uh, the the scales being balanced, okay, in in that regard, because I think that's part of the confusion is that we define justice as as the scales being equal. Or so the we, scales being the same. The scales being the same, exactly. They being the same. That they're both the the what's the the image of the the blind woman who's holding the the, the statue, right? Who's holding the scales, and they're they're kind of tipped in the same way. And so we're looking at uh, gender um, reproductive health in this way, and we say then that it has to be equal. Well, the only way that that can be equal is through e- extreme violence of the woman's body, or as you're saying, extreme degradation of the particular gift that she brings to the table. Exactly. So I think when if we were to use that image again of justice holding the scales, one of the things that we instinctively recognize is that it can be six in one and half a dozen in the other. Right. Right. So it can be equal without being necessarily the same. Right. And this is what we have here is that the moment that I try to make my body in some way like that of a man's, what I'm doing is I'm convincing myself that there is something intrinsically wrong with my body as I don't given. Think, I, I don't think that's what's being promoted. I don't think that understanding is, is what's being promoted. I affirm and I agree 110% with everything you're saying. And I think that's, that's the way forward for a Catholic feminist. And for a man also to, to, to ascribe to that, to say, no, that it's, it's, it's not that the church is putting restraints when it talks about contraception or when it talks about um, abortion. It's not saying that's putting a limit on human freedom. Rather, it's the only way to fully respect the gift of a woman's fertility. I, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, if we look at this even emotionally and psychologically, and you would know better than me, but what does it say that a perfectly healthy woman is being asked by society and by her husband, sometimes by her boyfriend, to take a medicine when she is not sick? What does that say to her emotionally? What does that say to her psychologically? And then what does it do to a healthy body to take medicine when it's not sick? Yeah, and you're referring specifically to an artificial pill contraception? Yes. Yes, obviously. Yeah. So because that's what it says. It says that fertility is a disease and that it needs to be regulated through medicine. That's what's being communicated rather than saying the gift of your cycle, the gift of your fertility is is present. It's real and it needs to be upheld. But with that, though, going back to the differences, Ish and Isha. Isha, the woman then is the one who has to receive. And if men and women together only really define one another in relationship. It seems then when we move toward this genderless society, that part of the part of what we're losing is intimacy. Part of what we're losing is the the need for real relationship because we've put the value of autonomy at at the height of it, independence. I don't need a savior because I can be on my own. I can take care of myself. I can do whatever it is that I want to do on my own. I don't need a man to rescue me. That's the shift that's happening in these movies where we used to go from the princess in the tower who needs the man to save her, where that's not meant to be this hierarchy or this, this degradation of the woman. It's to say that it's rather she is so precious that she has this value that we have to go fight and we got to be strong enough to, to deserve her goodness. We've lost that. And now it's just as if anybody can be the big superhero with strength and we, don't, we, don't, we just don't need each other. And, and I think what, what something like abortion actually reveals uh, in its practical implications is that, is that this intimate need will play out either well or it will play out badly. So in my own particular experiences with women um, who have had abortions, the reason given often um, was that the boyfriend wanted this, right? He called and he said, you need to get rid of it. You need to deal with the situation if you want to remain in a relationship with me. So what abortions are practically showing us is not that there is this great autonomy of male and female, but what it's showing us is the fear that a lot of people have, a fear that is so great that they're willing to settle for being less than who they are. So say that again, with the women that you have been in relationship with, with abortion, that it isn't for them uh, primarily about autonomy, that really it's about fear? 
It's about fear. Because I think instinctively, naturally, we all know that we want to only realize ourselves in relationship with the other. And if that other threatens to leave me, if that other tells me that he doesn't want part of me, then often, instead of saying, this is a particular gift, this is something unique about who I am, we deny our very selves in order to make that other happy. Yeah. And so fear is not what's promoted, obviously, with abortion rights. It's, it is autonomy. That, that's the word that, that gets used. But the reality, I, I think, as you're expressing often, is, is it, people are forced into it. There's a fear that's there. Now, I, you know, my heart always, and I, I, try, I try to see the good in people, and I try to see the good even in the motivations. And I know, obviously, they say hell is paved with best intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So still, though, if, if we're looking at the heart of somebody who promotes abortion, and if we look at the value of autonomy as one of those or equality that's there, those values in and of themselves aren't, aren't bad or, or aren't anti-Catholic. It's to, to what extent that the supreme virtue isn't autonomy, the supreme virtue isn't, um, isn't equality, the supreme virtue isn't even tolerance, the supreme virtue is love. love. In, in true justice, which is willing the good of the other, which is love, and, and justice in not just in the, the scales being being balanced, but justice in giving to the other person what they are due out of their inherent goodness. And I think we need to reclaim these virtues um, and, and, and help people to see like, okay, I know what you think is, is, what's, is, is what's right, but when we, when we confuse the two or we, when we put autonomy at all expense or equality at all expense as, as the supreme virtue, we can only get there with a complete disregard of, of our sexuality as it is. And I think you're right. I think a lot that there are a lot of people who probably misunderstand what abortion is. And I think that some of them probably do see it as a way for freedom or autonomy of women who are perhaps in abusive relationships, um, who don't have financial support. But what they're doing is that they're telling these women, your child is better off dead than it is in your hand, whether or not that's their intention, right? So if we truly wanted to support those women, we would do a couple of things. And one of those what would be, as I, as I know that a lot of people are doing pregnancy help centers, is really to help women become the mothers that they want to be. Because if we're going to say that, that the supreme virtue is love, I would say yes. And I would say love gives me the freedom because you help me to become the person that I am called to be. You recognize my unique gifts. You recognize my unique characteristics. You recognize as well what God has given to me. And you help me to live that out to the best of my ability. And so I would say that autonomy, it perhaps is, is misunderstood. But this idea of freedom is true and can only truly be found in love. And love then, if the woman receives the love of the man, calls him out to be father, as you said earlier. But then in turn, if the man truly loves the woman, he would encourage her to be mother. He would encourage her to be mother and he would give her the love that every, every bride deserves. Because once right, we become father and mother, ask anybody whose children have left the house, you become what's more, bridegroom and bride, yeah. right? And that's practical. I mean, the reality is that a woman, when her all her resources and energies and calories are all moving towards protecting of the child, she's vulnerable. And so she needs a husband, I would say. Again, hope nobody chines me for that, but but needs help from another because her body is 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 orienting itself to take care of the, the life that's within her. And so there you just can't do it all. And I think that's one of the 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 lies. Again, with respect, with respect, I understand why people come with this. But, but a woman can't do it all. And a man can't do it all either. And when we put all this pressure on, on one or the other having to do it all, it, it's, it's unsustainable. You have submission. to be your own creator and your own savior. It's just it's impossible. It's impossible. Well, Jennifer, I've, uh, Dr. Miller, I've greatly appreciated this conversation. Now you have a little project or not so little project that you're working on. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your writing research venture, Redeeming Gender? Thank you. Thank you for, for giving me the opportunity, Dr. Mario. So I'm very excited about this. I just got a great gift from Notre Dame Seminary, which is a sabbatical. For those of y'all who don't know, the sabbatical, which comes from like the idea of rest, is a 
<laughs> not that you get to rest, but you just get a year to do more intense research. And so with this idea that um, the idea that sex and gender, the relationship between sex and gender is kind of like a prism, right? So that the prism being sex has a particular or unique form or shape. We've been talking about bride, groom, bride, motherhood, and fatherhood. And yet when you shine a light on that prism, there's a spectra that comes out that's all these various colors, right? So all of us have like the little prism or the little um, sunglass that we have hanging up and we see all the colors come out of it. And we always look back because we know that it's referring back to something else, right? All of these different colors and shapes and sizes refer back to something else. So having done a lot of work in sacred scripture on the idea of sex and what that means, my my hope then is to show how gender actually being lived out in a myriad of ways due to our culture, due to the particular gifts, unique characteristics that God has given to each one of us, that that myriad of ways or that spectra of gender actually points back to sex and helps us to better understand it so that it's not a stereotype, right, but a, a direction that we then develop on our own with the grace of God and in relationship. So I will be traveling then to 13 different cultures around the world. Amazing. I'll be going to two uh, of the First Nation reservations here, the Lakota and the uh, Northern Cheyenne. I'll be going to Acadiana, so a shout out to all of my friends, family, and relatives there. Um, I'll be going to Mexico and Latin America, and Africa, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, in Europe, Italy, France, Switzerland, and Hungary, and then in Asia to Vietnam and India. And the idea is that by conducting interviews there, with Catholic theologians and with other scholars on masculinity and femininity, on the unique nature that finds in every um, that gender finds in every culture, we'll better be able to understand the myriad of ways, right, that we're called to live out our gender, and yet the beauty of that being rooted in sex, which gives us direction. Awesome. So not losing the objective truth of masculine and femininity and everything you spoke about within Genesis and how men and women are to to love one another and complement one another but then how different cultures actualize that truth, that's where the difference is going to be. And that's, that's what you're hoping to figure out is in that research, you got the theology, but, but doing some of this qualitative study of interviews and, and listening to stories, being able to, to then compare, I guess, to some degree, or just, just learn what each of the cultures has to offer. But it's recognizing that, that there is freedom in culture to to live these things out a little bit differently. Exactly. One of the things that I've noticed in reading a lot of people um, who speak on trans regret or the de-trans movement, so people have had gender reassignment surgery and then have decided um, that this was not a good choice, was a lot of them stated that they didn't feel like men or women or they didn't find a community. And so my hope is by showing that that community of men and women is a lot larger than previously thought, it will help people both who struggle with confusion regarding their sexual identity and then the rest of us who are just struggling with identity and, you know, our sex and our gender is part of that to be more comfortable in the freedom to live that out in truth. Beautiful. So if somebody wants to get more information about this research or follow you, what can they do? So they can go to my website. Um, I have a Wix website. I'm a moral theologian, so I do this in voluntary poverty, as Pope Francis calls us to. Um, that is jemillerstd.wixsite.com slash redeeming gender. And I will have a link to that in the show notes for anybody who would like to follow you and get some more information about it. Thank you very much, Dr. Maria. I truly appreciate it. Awesome. Okay. Well, last question that I ask all my guests, Dr. Miller, what gives you hope? I think what gives me hope is my sister. So my sister and I grew up, you know, two girls in the same Catholic family. You often get the Martha Mary. I mentioned this earlier. Um, and in my relationship with her, I think I found a great freedom in appreciating her gifts and as well the encouragement that she gives me to live out the particular gifts that God has given to me. And so her capacity to do that in friendship with me as living out her vocation as a wife and, a, and as a mother gives me hope for myself and for so many other women who desire to live according to the grace of God. Amen. Thank you for that. What a beautiful story. Well, we pray for one another. God bless you as you embark on your world tour of understanding gender. I look forward to hearing and reading the, the outcomes and the results of your study. It sounds thank super you. exciting. So thank you for coming back on the show. 
And uh, I'm sure that we will get you again for a future episode. Thank you and God bless you, Dr. God bless you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode. What's the takeaway? Men and women complement one another, and society is at its best when we understand this. While it seems to be easier to ignore the differences between us, the reality is that only by diving into them can we understand our shared human experience. Deep stuff, I know. So thanks for listening to the show, guys. God bless you. Be good. Subscribe. Leave a review. And just have a great day.